So this is the outline that we've been using. Uh, we are ready for, ready to not page 13 of your notes, but I'm not going to spend much time with the notes. The notes are much more extensive than what I've got time to handle uh, you know, as we go through this. But I think it's helpful to think about this outline. So again, a Sunday, the triumphal entry, very carefully orchestrated by Jesus, made to happen. Uh, that is, made to happen in the sense that he was clever enough to lay a plan that would alert the city to his coming. And at that season of the year, having especially he having... Uh, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks earlier. The whole city does erupt and, um, and welcomes him as king. It's not the first time, by the way, in John 15, after he fed the 5,000, they tried to take him by force, the Bible says, and make him king. But again, what I want to emphasize is uh, what they were interested is a deli- in, in was a deliverer from Rome. And that's not illegitimate. When Messiah comes and is accepted, he will, in fact, deliver Israel from her Gentile overlords. But they were not interested in accepting him as their deliverer from sin. They had that pretty well taken care of because they had embraced the Pharisaic gospel of uh, uh, righteousness in order to enter the law, keeping uh, enter the kingdom. All right, so Sunday, a day of messianic presentation. We asked the question, given Sunday, why Friday? I think a legitimate answer is Monday and Tuesday because on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus possesses and uh, cleanses and possesses the temple and behaves like Messiah. But before he leaves on Tuesday afternoon, he pronounces those woes upon the Pharisees, and in so doing, he drives that city to a decision. Are they willing to pay that kind of price to turn their back on the Pharisaic uh, false gospel and, 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 and suffer the uh, reparations that are certain to follow? And uh, the city is going to have a few days to think about it. Well, now... Tuesday night, I mentioned this the other day, but just to make it real clear, and it's on your sheet, Tuesday night, the Sanhedrinists, both Pharisee and Sadducee, because now they are united in their anger toward Jesus. The Pharisees have been mad for some time. The Sadducees, after the cleansing of the temple, they're beside themselves. And so they gather. This is uh, 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 Matthew fourteen, uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, all make very clear that on Tuesday night they gathered and they determined, they said, we need to put him to death, but we cannot do so during the feast lest there be a riot, which is curious. If you had been living in that day and you had perhaps even been a believer and somebody came to you with the newly written gospel of Matthew and you got to that portion in Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 26, uh, 26, where it says explicitly that two days before the Passover, the Sanhedrinists said, we need to kill him, but not during the feast. You just said to yourself, well, that's curious, because he died on the high day of the feast. And on Tuesday night, they were despairing of that. Well, what happened? Judas. Because again, Jesus was a master at protecting himself by never being in a place where his enemies could take him surreptitiously and spirit him off. And uh, he, the crowds protected him, albeit uh, their, their, their fascination was superficial. But So now Judas says, no, I can help you. And there is a huge plot laid in place. And that plot is, is, is the, the, the stuff of the plot is to get, as I said this morning, is to get Jesus arrested, tried, sentenced, and on his way to execution while the city sleeps. 
You've got to understand that. Folks, just real quickly, you can't, it's hard for us to imagine the absolutely simmering pot that's going on. This thing could explode. It's Passover. You've got hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims here. Just last Sunday, they all, as it were, swore their allegiance to this Nazarene. The Romans are horrible. I mean, the local Romans, Pilate, must have been horribly nervous that this could erupt into a huge, huge problem, and troops were going to have to come, and his head was going to roll, and uh, the, the, the Jewish authorities are desperate to be rid of Jesus and so on. It's just an unspeakable uh, drama. Does that make sense to you? And so now, on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, they, they lay this plot in place. Wednesday is in the record a silent day. I think it was a busy day because here's the thing. Here's what's going to happen very quickly. And it's explicit in the text. I'm not making anything up. Sometimes I make things up, but I'm not making anything up right now. The fact is that on Thursday night, Jesus is going to gather with his disciples for the Passover in an upper room in the western part of the city. Judas is desperate. To, uh, Judas is contrived to have everything. All right. Maybe I shouldn't jump ahead. No, I better not. <laughs> Sorry about this. I'm making it up as I go along, aren't I? No, let, let me do it this way. Let me take you to Thursday evening. Let me just say this, that Wednesday would have been a busy, busy day because of the logistics that were involved in making this arrest and arranging for this trial that's going to happen between sundown on Thursday and sunup on Friday. And I'm going to walk you through that, and I'll try and impress you with the logistics along the way, but it'll be easier if I just unfold the drama. So... Thursday is a day of, I call it, messianic preparation. And it is twice a day of messianic preparation, and I'm going to go very quickly. First of all, Jesus takes his disciples to a room that he had carefully arranged for. As a matter of fact, Jesus knows that Judas is planning the arrest in connection with the Passover. See, Judas knew that Jesus would be alone with his disciples for the Passover. And what happens is that Jesus secretly arranges the room. And then on Thursday afternoon, you remember this, Luke 22 and verse 7, he says to Peter and John, go into town and make ready for the Passover. And they say, okay, but where do you want us to do it? And Jesus says, you'll find a man by a certain gate carrying a pitcher of water. Now, folks, be patient with me here. But again and again, I, people got upset with me. That's omniscience. Now, let's think about this. That makes no sense whatever. I mean, it's as if, as, if, as if Jesus said, go prepare, and they said, where do you want to do it? And he said, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I'm getting something here. Going to town, you're going to see a man. Now, wait a minute. What's that guy doing there? Why is that? Jesus had set this up. I think probably on Wednesday, he had sent one of Lazarus' servants into town and said, he said, I, I, I need to talk to this woman who lives in the Western Hill, and she has a large upper room that's outfitted for a feast, and, and, and I'd like to borrow it, and that's okay. If that's okay, I want her to position a, a, a uh, servant in a specific place. And uh, now it's a perfect signal. He's carrying a pitcher of water. It, it always strikes me that that's just the perfect. It's, not, it's, it's very unusual, because you know, most of the time it's either women or children who carry water. But... This is a man. It probably, you know, it's, I always say it's not like a two-headed chicken. You know, people aren't going to stop and gawk. But the fact is that it's the perfect signal. So what is Jesus doing? He's keeping the place secret from Judas. If Judas had known the place, then he, the, the troops would have been there. 
And we wouldn't have had an upper room. Jesus would, matter of fact, when Jesus gets to the upper room, you remember he says to his disciples, you don't know with what desire I have desired to keep this supper. And I think the primary point is, I've rather moved heaven and earth to make sure that we had this time together. Because it is such an important time of preparation. So they're in the upper room, they gather. By the way, just think about what's going on in Judas's soul spirit. You know, he's got 600 soldiers, a whole cohort, it says in John 18. He's got 70 Sanhedrinists, the most important men in Israel, who are going to have a trial in the middle of the night, but it can't start until he produces the, the accused. And then he's got Pilate, who has moved his whole judicial apparatus outside to keep the Jews happy for a 4.30 a.m. trial. And none of that can happen until Judas comes up and, and, and Jesus has snookered him. And I think as, Jesus, as Judas, you know, he, he walks along and he's, he, he's cornered. So now they get into the upper room, they gather around that low table, and you have that remarkable scene that I'd love to walk you through. But all I'm going to say is this, that Jesus keeps the Passover, and at the end of the Passover, he announces that the, the, the one who is going to betray me is with me at the table immediately all 12 begin to say, who could it be? Judas, interestingly enough, is almost certainly, look, call to mind the picture of the Last Supper, okay, Da Vinci, call it to your mind. All right, now blow it to smithereens, okay, get rid of it. It, it. it couldn't get more in the way, all right? So good art, probably, what do I know, but really, really bad history and theology, for heaven's sake. So so you don't have 13 guys all on the far side of the table facing the artist, you know, with high tutor back charges and so on. Look, they, it's a U-shaped low table, and they gather around the table, and there are pillows. They recline to eat. This is not a meal. It's a feast, which includes a meal, but it's a teaching time. So here they are, and quite clearly, Judas is next to Jesus. And it's really stunning because when Jesus announces, the hand of the betrayer is with me at the table. Judas leans over to Jesus and says, is it I? And Jesus says, it is. So now all pretense is over. Judas knows very well that Jesus is on to him. If there was ever a time to turn back. But Judas makes an excuse, gets up, and goes to fetch the soldiers and the Sanhedrinists. Jesus initiates what we celebrated together. He introduces this remarkable, you know what that is that we just did, by the way, today? I love this. I'm convinced that the Lord's Supper is the seal of the New Covenant. Now, the New Covenant belongs ultimately to Israel, but we are happy beneficiaries of New Covenant blessings. You know what they are? Oh, don't go here, Bookman, but sins once and for all forgiven. Moses never knew that. David Never knew that. Hebrews 10, there was always another sacrifice. In the tabernacle temple system, there was never allowed to be any sort of bench or chair. Why? Because a priest might have sat down and somebody would get the idea that his work was done. His work was never done. There was always another sacrifice. Jesus offered himself up, and then what did he do? He sat down. Down. That's the whole point. And that reality that we have an offering that is sufficient to cover all of our sins and to satisfy God's offended holiness, oh, what a blessedness. The other new covenant blessing, which is so spectacular and so 
got to take so we, we, we ought to just learn to wallow in your new covenant blessings. And you know what? The only way you understand them is to read the Old Testament. Understand what it was in the Old Testament. And in contrast to that, you can appreciate your new covenant blessing. But the other new covenant blessing is this remarkable intimacy by which, listen, I do not believe that you can, I have not been able to find, and I've looked, I have not been able to find any place in the Old Testament where an Old Testament saint personally regards God as his father. He regards him as his Lord and his creator, his redeemer, his friend, his shepherd, his guide, but not as his father. And I think an Old Testament saint would be offended to hear you talk about Jesus as your father. But we know him not only as father, but as what? Papa. That ought to take your breath away. That we have that sort of intimate, we are invited to come into the Holy of Holies and and. and Crawl up on his lap, almost, is the picture in First Timothy 2 of prayer. So my point is that Jesus introduces this Lord's Supper, which I believe is the seal of the new covenant relationship that we have. But the point is that, and it's interesting, Judas has gone to fetch the Sanhedrinists. By now, it's somewhere around 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. The city is dark and quite quiet, but Judas has got to run all the way up. And by the way, you have this in your notes, so... Perhaps it would be good to uh, utilize it. Oh, come on, I don't want to do that. I forgot that. This map right here. And uh, here is the place of the Last Supper, and it's really quite well established. It's up on the western hill, the best part of the city. Here is where the Sanhedrin, the, the soldiers would have been. So Judas is going to have to make his way all the way up to the northern end of the city and uh, fetch the Sanhedrinists. They had no idea where they were going to go to uh, arrest this uh, supposed seditionist. Jesus, meanwhile, in the upper room, begins to teach. Well, first of all, he introduces the Lord's Supper. And uh, we read the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 today where Paul remembers this. It's interesting that when Paul, remember in 1 Corinthians 11, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Remember that? This is what it says in the Greek. It's really a little more direct. On the night while he was being betrayed, Jesus took bread because Judas was hustling up to fetch the Sanhedrinists and the soldiers. So at any rate, Jesus begins to teach this marvelous John 14, let not your heart be troubled. But then at the end of John 14, very suddenly, Jesus says, verse 31, I'm not going to go there, but John 14, verse 31, very suddenly, at the end of the verse, Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. Now those disciples would have expected to lay back almost certainly and just spend the night in the room. That's normally what you did. Uh, it was a borrowed room, so but, but uh, late at night, he says, we've got to be out of here. Well, he's watching his he knows how long it's going to take for Judas, and he wants more time. So Jesus leaves the upper room, and he makes his way over around the city. He had, had gone out a gate down here and up the valley of Kedron to a garden. Now, when you think of a garden in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you read about these gardens, it's not a rose garden. It's not a little place. with. It's a working farm. It's an installation. It's some sort of agriculture. I call it a hobby farm, but maybe not even that. Somebody in the city, you see, you can't, raise anything. You can't, you can't have a garden or a, a farm inside a walled city. So you, every walled city was ringed with these farms, these gardens. They were, they were plots of ground that were given over to some agricultural effort, and they were ringed in with uh, walls and thorns and, and so on. And, and, and there is one called Gethsemane that was evidently owned by someone who uh, followed Jesus, and he was off. The Bible says in John 18, that he would often stay here. This particular, and you need to go to Gethsemane when you go to Jerusalem, you go to Israel, certainly you'll go to Gethsemane. 
try and finagle, because most groups won't do this. Up on the hillside, there is a garden, and it has olive trees, eight very ancient olive trees, and they could be, if not the actual olive trees, most of the trees were cut out down all the way around Jerusalem. But olive trees grow. This, you're in the airspace where Jesus prayed, I think, with your Gethsemane. But what most people don't point out to is if you leave the garden, go down the lane, and because it's all built up with uh, streets and buildings and so on, you, don't, you, you miss this. But you go down a couple of sets of stairs, and you're in a cave which is at the very foot of that hill. It's part of the same hill. And that cave is probably, almost certainly, uh, as a matter of fact, that cave has been much explored, and it's been remembered as a sacred place for a couple of thousand years, and uh, it features a first century olive press, and Gethsemane means olive press. But the point is that I think gee, this is what happens. They would, the cave is a nice place to stay. It's warm in the winter and cool in the summer, and they would often stay there when they're in the region of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus brings the eleven. All along the way, he's teaching. And uh, he stops before he gets to the bottom of the valley and, 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 and prays the prayer of John. This is John 15, the vine and the branches. John 16, it's expedient for you that I go away. And then that blessed prayer of John 17. And then the Bible says that in John 18 that he stepped over the brook Cadron where there was a garden. Now, are you with me? Judas would have gone back to the upper room, right? That's where he left Jesus. Judas takes the soldiers, gets back to the upper room, goes up that outside staircase, bursts in, nobody there. Now John helps us here, because John 18 says Judas knew where Gethsemane was. It says Judas knew the place, because they often stayed there. So here it is, middle of the night, 11 guys, Jesus and the 11 apostles, they're not going to find a place to stay, so they, there's only one place it can be. So he follows the same route. Judas now follows him. Meanwhile, Jesus, and I said that the Thursday is twice a day of preparation. First of all, in the upper room and then along the way, Jesus is preaching those messages that are so important to prepare the disciples for his death, right? And their role after his death and the ministry of the Spirit in their, in their, in their ministry and so on. So those Hugely, we often call it the upper room discourse, but actually only John 14 happened in the upper room. 15 and 16 are clearly along the way, and 17. So he's preparing the disciples, but here's the thing. On the other hand, he is preparing his own soul spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to stop on that for just a couple of minutes. I mean, we should give it a lot of time, but let me take you first of all to, and I, I just think it's helpful to measure that experience against a passage in John chapter 12. And I'm going to break in on this passage, but I think it's so helpful. All right, let me tell you where I'm taking you, folks. And I want you to focus in on this. This is important. More important, maybe, than the, than the narrative, though I can't exp- I, 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 I don't know. I don't think there's anything more important than understanding this narrative. But one of the dynamics of the Passion Week, about which the Scriptures, the Gospels, are absolutely explicit, and even the the Epistles remember this, but it's hard on some people. And it's simply this. Now, hear me carefully. As the cross drew near, it absolutely terrified your Savior. And I've had people react against that and say, well, then he was a coward. No, 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 no. If he had turned back, he would be a coward. And let me say, it was not 
hear me, it was not the physical suffering of crucifixion that terrified him, as awful as that is. I've had people say, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. People seem to have less concern, you know, they'd be less terrified in, in, in Fox's Book. No, no. It wasn't the it wasn't the prospect of suffering. And we're going to talk a little, bit, a little bit about that tomorrow. And there has never been a more deliberately and extensively and awfully cruel means of execution than, the, than, than, than crucifixion. But that's not what filled his heart with terror. It was the prospect of being made sin for you and me. He had never experienced it. You know, <laughs> let me stop on that for just a minute. Think about this. When we think of death... We think, I think intuitively, immediately, and almost exclusively of physical death. Now, that's a real consideration. I'm an old guy. It's getting pretty close. So, I mean, that's, that's a, a real consideration. But that, in, in my mind, it, I think biblically, physical death is an afterthought with God. The first time we encounter death in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. Don't eat the tree, and the day you eat it, you will die. So he ate it, and 938 years later he died, right? Of course not. Of course not. The moment he ate it, he died. He was alienated from God. Think about this. Adam knew what it was to walk in the cool of the day in perfect, full, beautiful fellowship with the God who made him and to enjoy the soul satisfaction of that communion that God provided for us, intended for us, and now all of a sudden he is alienated from that God. He's angry with that God. See what I'm saying? That's spiritual death. And, and, and uh, you know, folks, you think of the most awful vicissitude of life, tragedy of life that could befall you, that would, or maybe even perish the thought has befallen you, and, and could bring you to the place where you really would despair of living. I mean, despair of any interest in living. And I'll bet you, it won't have to do with money. It won't have to do with health. It'll have to do with relationship. There is nothing in life more precious or meaningful than simple, beautiful relationship. Just what this room is punctuated with in all of its parts. Well, the fact is that there, we serve a triune God. We don't understand that, but it's clear in the Bible. And what it teaches us, and I have just rather lately in my life come to appreciate this, and it means so much to, to me, we serve a God whose nature it is to exist in relationship. It is eternal with him. It is native, natural to him. He cherishes relationship. You are made in his image. And that's why relationship is so precious and so important and so defining and fulfilling of all that life is that is good about life. It's relationship. Well, here in this triune Godhead, you have, we don't understand, I don't, we'll never get our arms around that. There's that about God. I, you know, aren't you glad to serve a God who's bigger than what you can understand? Wouldn't would it be distressing to serve a God who everything about him? Gonna, so he reveals that he exists from eternity in these three persons, this one God. But it certainly teaches us that there is between the persons of the Trinity this perfect, eternal, bottomless, infinite, precious relationship. What's going to happen on the cross is the Son is going to be judicially disfellowshipped by the Father. And Jesus is terrified. By the way, 
It's going to be every bit as painful to the Father as it is to the Son. But that's what it's going to take. I said earlier that physical death is an afterthought. I always think, how hard is it for Jesus, for God, to fix physical death? Lazarus, come out here. Okay, no, it's over. How hard is it for God to fix spiritual death? It's this scene right here. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus is going to endure that. Yea, verily, the Father is going to endure that. So, as the cross drew near, it, it genuinely terrified Jesus. And one of the ways you see that is you start in John 21, real quickly. John 21, I'm not going to background it much, but on, it was on Tuesday afternoon. And some, some Greeks had come and said, we want to meet Jesus. And Jesus had begun to talk to them about dying. I think he is talking most of all about his own death. He's just encouraging himself. Unless a grain of wheat fall on the ground and die, it can't bring forth fruit. But as he contemplates dying, all of a sudden you have a, a startling verse right here in John verse, at 12, verse 27. Where John, and, and I always say it's kind of like a Shakespearean soliloquy where, you know, where the actor steps to the front of the stage and begins to address the heavens and leaves the drama behind. You remember that? And, and, and that's really what happens. Now, now, I get this picture. It's Tuesday afternoon. Jesus knows that his crucifixion is soon to come. He's encouraging himself. He's talking about dying. And all of a sudden he says, look at it. Now my soul is troubled. I picture Jesus just kind of staggering. My soul is, is heavy. It's troubled. It means heavy. And then he says this, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So he's, he's, he's genuinely tempted to pray, deliver me. But he says, no, no, I can't do it. It was for this hour, this purpose that I came to this hour. And so he says this, and there is not a more noble scene in all the scriptures. Jesus looks to the heaven, and he says simply, Father, glorify your name. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. It is darker than I can imagine. My soul is so heavy. With, I'm just going to ask God, you be glorified. Folks, when, when, when you and I struggle with life, whatever it is, that's the prayer right there. I don't understand how I'm going to get through this, but I'm asking and, 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 and the father was so thrilled that he, he spoke aloud. Can you imagine this scene, how, how intimate and sensitive this is? And the father speaks aloud. And he makes a promise here in, verse, in, the, in, the, in the verse, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That's the promise that Jesus took to the cross. Now, all, the reason I go there is because I want to contrast that to, and I, I don't think I need to read it, but you'll remember, that on, so on Tuesday, watch this, on Tuesday, as he contemplated death, his soul all of a sudden was so heavy that he, he, he prayed. He, he said, what shall I pray? Shall I pray, deliver me from this hour? I can't do it. Is it not meaningful that what Jesus refused to pray on Tuesday afternoon, he prayed explicitly three times on Thursday evening? Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But he never stops there. Not my will, but thine be done. But it's a, and you know, Luke gives us a couple of insights, and they're stunning, and they are in the Bible. I know some of you may realize there are some uh, text critical issues here, but they belong in the Bible because Luke in Luke 22 gives us two insights. Number one, he says that uh, 
Jesus sweat great drops of blood, which is a physical. It says something about that man who had spent the better part of 20 years uh, as a stonemason, I believe, that he had the virility to survive the kind of pressure that is involved with your heart beating with such a ferocity that it forces the blood from the capillaries and so on. And so he, he sweat great jobs of blood. Then the Bible says this, that the Father sent angels. Now the only other time that the Father ever sent angels, and by the way, what's at stake here is that Jesus would never ever use his miracle work and power on his behalf. That would be cheating. He came to your life, live your life before. You might, and the only other time the Father sent angels was after the 40-day fast that preceded the temptation. Now, what do you look like after a 40-day fast? So angels had to come. Jesus was alone. He was after 40. This is the temptation at the very beginning of his ministry. But he was so, so debilitated at such an extremity that he was near death. And so angels come, and I think they nursed him back for, I don't know, four or five weeks probably, just nursed him back. This is the only other time the Father sends angels. Now it's not by reason of a 40-day fast. It's by reason of Jesus' contemplation of what he was about to endure for you and me. I, I, I don't know what those angels did. I, I, I picture maybe just bending over and helping him up, and, and with angelic help he staggers out of the garden. Jesus was cripplingly terrorized by the prospect of the cross. Let me tell you. Folks, the reason I stop here, I don't think you can get your arms around Golgotha unless you start with Gethsemane. Think about how difficult it is. We live in a day, and there's always been, you know, men have always been adept at this, but we live in a day when men with their, you know, their graphic arts are very, very adept at portraying physical violence, physical suffering, physical suffering. But how do you communicate spiritual suffering? How do you represent that? I think it's Gethsemane. There, there's a sense in which it's almost, it's, it seems a little bit impertinent to gaze upon that scene because it's so intimate between the Son and the Father, but clearly every gospelist records it, and, and God in heaven, that is all three, and they want, God wants us to understand it. And I think it's because spend a little time with it and, and, and think about Jesus throwing himself on the ground and begging the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. And now with angelic help, he staggers out, gathers the, the, the sleeping uh, disciples. And as he emerges from the garden, here comes Judas and the Sanhedrinists, and Jesus is arrested. Now I want to go to Friday morning. And uh, Friday is ultimately a day of messianic perfection on the cross. And we're going to think about that in the morning. But I want to spend some time with, I'm, I'm going to very quickly rehearse the trials. Jesus is arrested. His disciples desert him quickly. And Jesus is, it's about somewhere around 11 o'clock, midnight maybe. And there is going to be, uh, there, there are going to be two sets of trials. No, nah, not trials. Two judicial hearings. And I'm going to handle the first one very quickly. It's laid out in your notes. There's a lot there. Let me just say this. I shouldn't, but let me say this. I can't. There is a whole world of critical scholars who want to deny the historicity of the Bible. Their happy hunting grounds is the Gospels. 
because the, you got four guys telling the same story, and they're trying to pick away at it and find contradictions. There aren't any contradictions. Of all the Gospels, the place they love to go most of all is the trials. And they will insist that these trials, the, four, the stories told about the trials, there's absolutely no way to reconcile them. It's just a, oh, they fit together so well, perfectly. If you understand the culture, and it's, it's such a tight historical narrative. But I haven't got time to take you through much. But let me say that Jesus is arrested by a cohort. That's about 600 now. Maybe not, it's, it's total, but, but a huge band of soldiers. And some people say, as a matter of fact, John 18 says that Judas came with a cohort of soldiers with armor, weapons, and lanterns. And some people say, well, that's silly because Jesus wasn't a threat. No, Jesus wasn't a threat. They were afraid of a riot. They had every reason to think, be afraid of a riot. That's exactly what this is all about. This is exactly the way the Romans handle things. So they bring this great force, and Jesus is arrested. Now he's brought back up on the western hill. We can go back to this uh, same map. He's brought back up, and right here, and I think a little closer, right about here, is the personal home of the high priest. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but suffice it to say that the Jewish authorities are really not interested in trying Jesus. They know that they couldn't put him to death anyway, but they don't have an indictment. And so their whole purpose, they gather, and first of all with Annas, and then with the group and so on, and they're trying to get Jesus because, as I said to you earlier, Jesus was so circumspect that he never spoke of himself as Messiah. And so they were just flummoxed. They, 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 they brought in all these witnesses, and they couldn't come up with credible eyewitness, ear witness testimony that this man claimed to be Messiah. And so, finally, this went on for some time, false witnesses. So finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, kind of quieted the room. It's the middle of the night. It's the Sanhedrin. Kind of quiets the room, and he puts Jesus under oath. And he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And I think Caiaphas was clutching at straws. I think he had no hope whatever it would work. But to his delight and surprise, Jesus said, I am. Well, as soon as he said that, the 70 said, we got him. We got him. Because they had already arranged for a trial about 4.30 in the morning. And that trial before Pontius Pilate. Now, remember. This is all about getting this done before the city wakes up. They are absolutely convinced. Once the city wakes up, they're going to riot. They don't understand what happened on Tuesday afternoon when Jesus pronounced those woes upon the Pharisees. See what I'm saying? And all they could, they got Sunday and Monday and Tuesday ringing in their ears, Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish and Roman authorities. So once they figure they've got Jesus, they haul him off to Pilate. Now, I want to spend some time with Pilate for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's John 18 and 19. As a matter of fact, let's go there here. Uh, John 18 and 19. And uh, we'll start in John 18, about verse 28, I believe. Now listen, I'll tell you up front. Uh, well, let me start with this. And with this, all we're going to do, and I'll, I'm going to walk you through this remarkable trial before Pilate. Uh in 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, and this, this verse really got a hold of me some years ago. Paul says this to Timothy, I adjure thee by the living God and by the good confession which Jesus witnessed before Pontius Pilate. And I thought, now wait a minute. 
Paul could evidently refer to that episode and just expect that Timothy was sufficiently familiar with it. He'd know how to put that to use. Paul is saying, I want you to press yourself into the mold of Jesus there before Pontius Pilate. And I thought, I don't know that I could do that. And it, it sent me on a bit of a quest to get to know Pilate and get to know this, this, this episode and so on. And uh, it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. And I'll tell you something. Well, I'll tell you two some things. I think, I think we very possibly might encounter Pilate in heaven. All right? Pilate is really remarkably noble in this entire, entire narrative, save the scourging, and there's even a nobility to that. But the other thing I want to say is that what is so impressive here is the way Jesus handles Pilate. And I think Paul is saying to Timothy, you learn to handle yourself that way. And I will say, that I think, given the culture in which we live and perhaps the point in God's purposes that we live, I think any one of us individually or corporately may be standing before very hostile authorities in days to come. Go to school on Jesus. It's staggering. This is really a remarkable scene. So let me just walk you through it. They bring Jesus to Pilate very early in the morning. I would say about 4.30. I'd have to explain why I get there. But I think it's very close to 4.30. Pilate, because the, the Pharisees didn't want to go into the praetorium, they defile themselves, they had, Pilate had moved the, the, uh, the trial out to an outer gate where he had a judicial apparatus. It's called the, the gate of the, the, the Essenes. I can take you there. It's a delight. I mean, you can stand right there and see where the gate was and where Jesus would have stood and so on. It's just staggering. And nobody knows it's there. It's my secret. But uh, honest to goodness, nobody goes there. But, oh, it's, we always go there in the evening hope for a bright moon and stand there and contemplate that is just staggering. But the point is, when the, when, the, when the Jews come, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrinists come, Pilate greets them as the judge, and he says, what's the charge? They say, if he weren't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just crucify him. Now, hear what they're saying. Pilate, the clock is ticking. The city's going to wake up. We walked all this through this. We've settled that. Just pronounce him guiltless, a guilty, and have him crucified. Pilate says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you something. In this whole episode, Pilate discovers in himself a reserve of character nobody saw coming, I think. But at any rate, for whatever set of reasons, Pilate takes Jesus inside. And that conversation begins here in verse uh, 35, 33, when Pilate takes Jesus inside the praetorium. Now, uh, you remember back there in 1 Timothy, it says, Pilate, Paul, says, Paul says to Timothy, I adjure thee by the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. Well, the curious reality is that in the entire trial before Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, back to Pontius Pilate, Jesus never says a word except when he's alone in the praetorium. So this has to be the good confession. It's the only time he speaks. Does that make sense to you? Now watch. I love this. Now again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my high horse here, but uh, here it is. Pilate entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus. Now let's just live through this. Jesus and Pilate alone in Pilate's delightful, expansive 
palace on the west side. Herod built it, but Pilate lives here when he's in Jerusalem. Huge palace. On the outside is a gate where the trial's going on, but now Jesus takes Pilate inside the praetorium. And Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Right here. Well, you have to understand that that is a cripplingly ambiguous question. And, I mean, is Pilate asking, are you the kind of seditionist that they, are you claiming to be the king of Jews, the Jews as a seditionist? What's the answer to that? Is he a seditionist? Absolutely not, and the record cannot be confused. He can't go to the cross having been convicted of a crime, for heaven's sakes. So Jesus, and Jesus is living this out in real time, just as real as any event you ever had in your life. So Jesus stands, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Well, he could mean, am I a seditioner? He could have mean, am I the long-awaited Messiah? So he says, Jesus, and I think this is one thing to learn from this. I don't want to preach it, but Jesus was so jealous for the truth. And he patiently teased out. So he said to him, here it is right here, uh, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others, see what he's saying? He's saying, Pilate, are you asking me from your own heart if I'm the Messiah of Israel? Or are you asking me if I'm guilty of what I'm accused of. So Jesus carefully teases out the exact meaning, and Pilate responds by saying, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So I have the judge. Now he's made it clear. I'm asking you, are you a seditionist? Now, folks, like I got time for this. But the next verse is one of the most precious and one of the most misused verses in the Bible. Uh, forgive me if I'm stepping on toes, but because uh, I don't know for sure. I don't think I probably am, but I'll just tell you this. Uh, I have a lot of amillennial friends. If any one of them accidentally drops his Bible, it's going to flop open to this verse, right? This is their verse. My kingdom is not of this world. So clearly it's not. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's standing before a duly appointed judge. He's been asked a legitimate question. Are you a seditionist? So he seizes the opportunity to deliver a one-sentence lecture on kingdom theology that unsays everything the Old Testament ever says. I said, I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on here. And what really bothers me about this is this is genius. Folks, after Pilate emerges from this private conversation, Pilate is going to five times insist this man is not a seditionist. There is every reason in the world for Pilate to cave in. There is every conceivable pressure for him to just send him to a cross. And yet Pilate digs in his, his heels and stunningly says, I'm not going to do it. This man is innocent. How came Pilate to that persuasion? Right here. Pilate is interrogating. Are you a seditionist? Are you claiming to be? What have you done? And Jesus simply says this. There's genius in this. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, if we wonder what he means by of this world, maybe we ought to read the next sentence. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I be not taken. My kingdom does not come this way. Now remember, the only question before the house is, are you a seditionist? Are you a threat to Rome? Listen, the Romans knew what sedition looked like. 
Every false messiah in Israel did the same thing. He found himself a little fastness down in the Jeshimon, and he gathered a little militia, and he came out, and he fought the Roman troops. Jesus had been going up and down the countryside for the best part of three years. There were tens of thousands, if not more, of people who were absolutely committed to him. Not one of them had ever raised a hand. This, by the way, is why it was so important the night before, just a few hours ago, for Jesus to tell Peter, put your sword away. Because he's got to be able to make this argument. And I picture, honest to goodness, I picture Pilate maybe stepping back and stroking his chin and saying, I don't live in a cave. I know this man's going up and down my, ter- my, my jurisdiction for all of these months. The people who follow him are, are, are some of the most loyal people. They would never raise a hand. Nobody's ever raised a hand. And he just came to the conclusion the case, I think Jesus just gave an absolutely airtight legal argument. So you can't possibly make the case that I, my kingdom doesn't come like a worldly kingdom. If it did, then my servants would fight, but they don't fight, and therefore my kingdom doesn't come in this way. You tell me why it is that Pilate becomes so absolutely entrenchantly convinced that Jesus is guiltless. It's this right here. But the next verse is what's really stunning. And this is what I think really colors this whole thing. Because now, Pilate says, I'm in trouble. Pilate says to Jesus, well, are you a king then? You hear what he's saying? Are you the Jewish Messiah? And that has nothing to do with the judicial proceedings. I think there is in Pilate something of a seeker. Like I say, he'd heard of this Nazarene. There were probably people in his circles who had been healed by this Nazarene. And he's just alone, so he, he asks, well, are you a king? And oh, I love Jesus' answer. Jesus was a premillennialist. This is what he said, you say rightly that I'm a king. It was for this purpose that I was born. It was for this purpose that I came into the world that I should bear witness to, and I think it's a demonstrative article, this truth. And anybody, how does he say it? Anybody who is of the truth is going to hear my voice. You say rightly that I'm a king. All right, quickly, Pilate throws his hands in the air. He walks out. For the first time, he just announces, I'm just going to walk you through it. The man is guiltless. His accusers, the city is still, so. his accusers begin to, no, no, he's trouble. He's trouble. He's a seditionist. He's been kicking up trouble ever since Galilee. Well, Pilate is desperate not to have to do this. He hears Galilee. He thinks that's Antipas's jurisdiction. He's down the hall, sends him off to Antipas. Nothing comes of it. While Jesus is being hauled off to Herod Antipas, I think Pilate came up with a really, really clever plan. Because Pilate knew that just last Sunday, the whole city had received Jesus as king. And he could look, and the way this gate was constructed, he could look out onto the hillsides and see that now the city is starting to wake up. Can you imagine when the story began to spread through that tightly packed city that this one whom they welcomed as king on Sunday was now on trial for his life before Pilate, and it was right out in the west side, so they'd begun to come. And Pilate says to himself, I'll go over the heads of the Jewish authorities. So now he turns to the people. Jesus is brought back, and he says, uh, who would you have me give you? Barabbas. Or Jesus. He's confident. Oh, they all asked for Jesus. Remember Sunday? The Bible says the Sadducees persuaded the people to demand Barabbas. And, 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 and this is what happens. He says, who would you have me give? Give us Barabbas. He's stunned. And he says, I think he's asking, what do you want me to do with Jesus, who you call the Christ? What are you talking about? 
and they say crucify him. And, 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 and then Pilate does something that I think is, is really, it's terrible, but it's kind. He takes Jesus and has him scourged. But after he has him scourged, he brings him out and stands him in the gateway, I think, and you can look, see right where he would have stood. And he, he, he said now to the crowds, behold the man. He's, Jesus has a cheap robe and a crown of thorns, and he's been beaten awfully. And he looks at him and he says, behold the man. I think what Pilate is saying, you're telling me that this man is a threat to Rome. Have you had enough, for heaven's sakes? Won't this be enough? I think that's what he's saying. But they begin to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And now we go to John 19, just real quickly. I'm done quickly, but John 19, uh, Jesus, uh, he, he's scourged. And uh, here where you, and, and again, Pilate says, uh, they cry out, verse 6, crucify him. And he says, will you take him and crucify him? Because uh, uh, I find no fault in him. And this is what I want you to see. I don't know why it froze on me. Let me see if I can do this. All right, right here. Uh, this is where Pilate has said, you take him and crucify him. And here in verse 7, the Jewish leaders, well, they say, well, if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, that's the idea, then we have a law. And by our law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the son of God. Folks, just let me tell you. This, the whole, theologically, everything turns on this. Jesus died because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's exactly what the text says. Well, when Pilate heard that, he was the more afraid, and he took Jesus in a second time. All right, just bear with me with this. He takes Jesus in once again. It's just Jesus and Pilate inside the praetorium. And Pilate, well, it says there in verse 8, when, uh, when Pilate heard that saying he was the more afraid, he went in and he began to say, I love this, he began to say to Jesus, where are you from? Who are you? Sunday the whole city welcomes you. I'm scared beyond words. Now the whole city is crying for your crucifixion and everything I do, they won't give up. Who are you? Jesus won't respond. And finally, Pilate said to him, verse 10, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have to crucify you, and now in verse 11, and I'm going to warn you, I'm going to put a different reading on this than you're used to. But Jesus said, you have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And that's almost always taken to mean, in our circles, not in the commentators, but in our circles, I mean, you wouldn't have any power if my Father in heaven hadn't put you there. All right, maybe so. doesn't make any sense to me. For one thing, I can't make sense of the next verse. Therefore, the next sentence Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. I believe that what Jesus is saying is this, Pilate. You would have no authority at all over me unless it had been given to you from Roman authority above you. In other words, you were assigned this jurisdiction. You didn't chase me down. You're not the one who... You simply found yourself in this position... And therefore, you'd have no authority at all, except that it was assigned, you, this jurisdiction was assigned to you. Now the next sentence makes all the sense in the world. Therefore, the one who turned me over to you has the greater sin. That's Caiaphas. Folks, honest to goodness, 
I, my imagination gets away. I picture Jesus, maybe he's got manacled hands and he's bloodied and staggering and he's alone with Pilate. And Pilate says, you're not going to talk to me. Don't you realize I got the authority to crucify you or to set you free? And I picture Jesus maybe stepping forward and taking Pilate by the soul, shoulders and looking into his eyes and saying, Pilate, you'd have no authority at all except this was assigned you. This is not your fight. The real guilt belongs to Caiaphas. So what's Jesus doing, if I'm right? I think he is giving Pilate permission to go ahead. Now think about this drama here. Jesus has to die. Pilate has a role to play, and yet he is desperate not to do it. And Jesus, without forgiving, without absolving him of any part, he says, the greater sin belongs to Caiaphas. And now Pilate goes back out, and for the fifth time he says, the man is guiltless, I'm not going to crucify him. And at that point, the Jewish authorities play their trump card. I told you before, Pilate was a, was a crippled ruler. He'd, he'd, he'd used up all of his coupons back in Rome. He knew it, everybody knew it. And so they say, if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar. And, and I think with Jesus' voice perhaps ringing in the back of his mind, this is the way I picture it. I think Pilate finally went up on his throne, his bema seat there just on the outside in that part of that wall system, that gate system, called for a basin, took a rag, washed his hands, got up, walked down, turned to go into the praetorium, laid that Ragged down and said over his shoulder, you do what you will with him. Now, Pilate is not to be excused, but I think here's, 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 this is why I love this passage. The passage, the story doesn't end there. I told you to be done, but I'm going to be. But what happens is that Pilate, now I told you before that crucifixion was not about executing the seditionist. It was about putting down the sedition, and to that end, Rome insisted that there be a marker, a titulus as it's called, that was put on the cross that announced that this person died for raising his hand against Rome. Well, Pilate writes a, 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 the, the titulus, and it says, and he puts it in three languages, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's so fascinating that here in verse 20, when many of the Jews read this title, uh, it says many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And they, the chief priests of the Jews came back and they said to Pilate, do not write, now watch this, do not write the king of the Jews, but write he said I am. See, don't write king of the Jews. Write that he was a seditionist. I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. All right, now listen. I cannot help but connect that to what Jesus had said just a few minutes earlier when Pilate had said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I'm a king. It was for this purpose that I came into this world and anybody who is of the truth is going to hear my voice. And now, and I think probably putting his, his career and perhaps even his life on the line, a Roman prefect, in, as, in, in, in the Roman Empire where there was one king and his name was Caesar, he emblazons on that cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's stunning. And I think it very well may be a testimony. Now, 
I'll just say this, that there are a lot of churches, early churches, the canonized. He's Saint Pilate in a lot of churches. There are very early traditions and so on. You do what you want with that. I will say this. I think it's stunning the way Jesus handled himself before Pilate. On the one hand, Jesus was, had, was jealous for the truth. That's why he teased the question out to make sure there was no confusion, that he got it exactly right. On the other hand, he was jealous for God's purposes, and God's purposes at this time were him to go to the most awful death we can imagine. But Jesus is, I think, he's, he's, he's moving that forward. But the other reality is, I would argue that Jesus loved the man Pilate. And the way he conducted himself with such grace, with such honesty, Pilate was, I think, overwhelmed. And the Spirit used it. So you do what you will with all of that. But Pilate does, in fact, turn Jesus over to be crucified. And uh, about 6 o'clock in the morning, John 19, verse 14 says, and so Jesus is taken to be crucified, and uh, we'll, we'll handle that drama. We'll, we'll walk quickly through that in the morning. All right, thank you for your patience here. I'm a little late. Let me have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do once again thank you for the the drama that's before us. Father, I thank you for the life that Jesus lived. It was a life that we never could live, a life of absolute righteousness. And, and Father, even this drama before Pilate, what a, what a stunning and instructive display of, of, of compassionate, submissive, uh, just, just the way he handled himself so remarkably. And Father, I thank you for the death that Jesus died. It was a death we never could have died because it was entirely innocent. And I thank you for the price that Jesus paid in dying that death. It was a price we never could have paid. Now we have life which is not ours. We owe it to you and to him. So, Father, thank you for this drama, and might it be the more real to us for the time we have together. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.